So here we are, coming towards the end of a first day of practice, and we've um, fed you quite a lot of things, some of which no doubt have, some of things of which I hope, I, I believe, have, will have been helpful. Some of the things may have confused you somewhat. So um, what I'm going to do this, often, this evening is just um, partially recap and partially kind of elaboration, amplification, expansion on uh, what we've been talking about so far. And then um, I'll try to respond to a few questions that manifested a bit earlier in the, in the bell. So that's the plan. We'll see what happens. So I, if you, if you um, have perused the back of the chanting sheet that I gave you this morning, which you don't need to have done, but some of you might have found that your curiosity took you there or a bored moment in your meditation... Um, you'll see that there's a, a, a it's a chant um, that actually it, it's I, I love it because it's the most commonly uh, used way that the Brahma Viharas are talked about in the in the Pali Canon when they're spoken of. This is the kind of stock term in which or the stock. Uh, passage which repeats itself again and again throughout the suttas about in, in which the Buddha uh, talked about um, these Brahma Viharas and where we get this idea of um, abiding from, this abiding and also um, expanding to all these directions as we've been doing. And he, he described that as both as a training, a way to train ourselves when we're uh, on a path of awakening, and also as the way that an awakened one dwells. So um, this is something that uh, possibilities of the heart that we develop in the course of our practice, but also the way that the, that the awakened heart uh, abides. And so I want to look at, at them in, in, f- in four ways, if you like. Um, as a sense of the first thing that we need to do is to uh, have some understanding of them so that we have some understanding of how they function and the ability to recognize them. And then to talk again a little bit about this um, sense of dwelling in them and the, uh, the dwelling in them and radiating them to these directions. And then the biggest task for us really is cultivating them. How do, we, how do we cultivate them? So you don't need to follow the chanting text on the back of the sheets, but at some point, if you haven't looked at it, you might want to look at it. And of course, you can take, the, take those sheets home with you. But that, it talks about um, abide, abiding, pervading uh, all directions with each of these four qualities. So these four, four um, facets of the heart, if you like, uh, offer us really a complete set of responses uh, to meet any circumstances that life can throw at us. The complete array of choices for an appropriate response for a heart that is bent on awakening. So um, the qualities of goodwill or friendliness, of compassion, of equanimity, and of uh, appreciative joy. And these qualities are interdependent. In some ways, they're not really separate from one another. They're just uh, the response to the different circumstances that can arise. If you like, four faces of love, the way that love expresses itself in different situations. So sometimes uh, people speak of them as being like the four chambers of the heart or um, the foundations, floor and walls and roof of the house that all support one another. Sometimes um, people talk of it as being like a tree, that the tree of compassion is nourished by the water of metta, 
of goodwill. It's out of goodwill that compassion arises. And they also, they not only enable one another, but they balance one another. So uh, we've already um, talked a little bit about how uh, equanimity is, is needed, really, uh, in order for us to um, meet, meet a situation with compassion. Equanimity balances compassion. It also... Um, you know, prevents compassion from collapsing into despair in the face of uh, when, we, when we reach the limits of our ability to help in a situation. Equanimity also uh, prevents joy from tipping over into um, excessive excitement. And that might be something that we speak a bit about more tomorrow. And at the same time, um, goodwill or kindness warms up our equanimity. So equanimity without any sense of care or kindness can tip into indifference. So these qualities balance one another. So just to speak a bit more about this sense of uh, dwelling in them or abiding and some of you are still a little confused by what we mean about abide. Uh, maybe just to say, you know, the word, this word Brahma Vihara, um, abide, abiding or abode of the gods. Brahma, the Brahma gods were the most powerful gods in the ancient Indian pantheon, the ones with the furthest reach, the greatest range of influence. So, you know, it's a, it's a sublime and a divine and heavenly place for the heart to dwell, but this also points to the power and the extent and the capacity of these qualities. But the piece that I'd like to, to say a little bit more about than we've said is this word vihara, which we, we translate as abiding or dwelling, I like. So actually the, the, the word is uh, to he dwells or she dwells, um, viharati, from which we take vihara. And vihara is the word for a dwelling place that was used for monks and nuns, a place where they made their home. So it's the word for a monastery. And the monks and nuns in the time of the Buddha, they didn't spend all their time in the monastery. It was where they went when the weather was bad during the rainy season. So it's not a place where you kind of go and hide away. It's a place where you go to when you need to, to take shelter, maybe for refuge and for rest and for nourishment, but it's a place from which you then set out on a journey. So the Buddha's instruction to his students was to travel off in different directions and to take the teaching and the practice where they could go, not to stay tucked up all the time in a monastery. And that makes me think of, there's a line, I think it's from T.S. Eliot, that says, home is where you start from. So this is a place where we go out from. This sense of abiding is actually a process word. It's a, a dynamic word. You know, it it's a, a, implies a movement outwards. But it also does, of course, have a sense of a sense of stability to it, a sense of steadiness. So uh, that these aren't just uh, they aren't just transient states. It implies that there's something something more um, reliable to them than that. Um, so uh, the word that I like in English that's related, of course, to where we live and where we dwell is uh, habitat, where we inhabit. Our home is where we inhabit. And, of course, that's related to the word habit. Uh, and we've said already that the things that we frequently turn our mind to and develop, the things that we frequently practice, become the place in which we dwell or we abide. So this sense of um, creating a habit that then becomes a home, becomes a resting place and a starting point for our emerging into the world. 
and I find that's a, a useful way to look at uh, this sense of, of dwelling and abiding. And the abiding is actually the radiating. So the, the phrase in, this, in the, in the um, chant on the other side of the sheet says, um, he abides or we abide uh, radiating these qualities in all directions. And the image that gets used in the, in the texts is of a, a conch blower. So this is how they sent messages and communicated across vast distances in the high mountains in the ancient times, is that you had people who were expert, expert and skilled in blowing on a conch shell. And if you stand on a high mountain top and blow on the shell of the conch, then the sound can be heard in all directions for many miles around. Makes me think of alpine horns, perhaps. You'd stand on the top of your alpine mountain and they're sending, sending out with a, a clarity to vast distances and all directions. And we're picking this up with the sense of reverberating something or resonating, lingering. So we just make one intention of kindness or goodwill and it's like you strike the bell. There's the one action of striking. And that produces this sound that extends in time and in space. And the reach of these, these intentions and the actions on which these, uh, the, that stem from these intentions have uh, repercussions that suffuse through time and space. I'm just thinking that the, that the word actually in the translation there is pervading rather than radiating. So pervading is a, another word for extending through time and space. And a helpful perspective on this, I find, is um, rather than thinking of these, these as being uh, things that we have to plant inside our heart, so a uh, quality that we, we plant inside this, this organ here in the center of the chest is rather that we establish our home inside these intentions. So the intention is the larger container in which we make our dwelling rather than something small that uh, is planted inside of us. And of course, developing these qualities, you know, they, they, they're part of a family of cultivation and development. It's like we, in order to, to practice them, to manifest them, we, we need these other qualities of mindfulness and understanding. They're all part of an ecosystem that uh, support each other's growth and development. So although we're focusing our attention on these qualities, uh, part of learning to practice them is also to develop our, our mindfulness and our wisdom. And wisdom reveals to us that uh, we, we need another reference point for our choices that we make than just the impulse of this moment. So we start to see the consequences and the... the um, the implications and the effects of just following our moment-to-moment -moment impulses, we realize that this isn't something terribly reliable. So we find a, a different refuge than the story of me and my preferences. And as we begin to see that story of me and my preferences with more clarity, we also see how um, insubstantial or how fleeting and changing that sense of self can be. This is one of the things we notice as we sit in the center of things and watch with this sense of balance and non-judgment, these different me's that arise through the 
course of the day and the stories that we create and recreate about ourselves. These aren't a very safe abiding place. So um, we've been talking about how the the heart cramps and uh, that this inhibits the flow of compassion, this cramping and stressing of the heart around these these contractions around uh, this sense of me and and self, and that actually the the Brahma Viharas have a power to defrost some of this contraction, some of this uh, freezing up, and then we can come to see that uh, the safety, the refuge in the in these qualities is more valuable than getting my way in the moment. That We can tap into a, a bigger source of energy than just me and mine. So this sense of being able to plug into something larger that can hold us, establishing ourselves, making our home inside this uh, more generous, less cramped intention. And that this sometimes can put us in touch almost with a sense of of grace, that we tap into something divine, bigger than us, mysterious to this limitless potential. And that can sound that can sound very very daunting as a as a task or an undertaking, but all we ever have to work with is what's here and now. So in terms of cultivating these qualities, the the task is to build on what we already know and what we've already glimpsed. So the, the Buddha's teaching invites us to look here, look at what's here. Ehi Pasiko, he said, come and see what's here. This is the nature of my teaching. It points to what's here. And what we're doing in terms of naming again and again and, and uh, referencing these qualities and speaking about them is we're training ourselves to notice them. And the first thing to do is to notice when they're already present. You know, none of you have not tasted these qualities, both in yourself or witnessed them and witnessed them in other people. So we're orienting to them, we're noticing them, we're developing an appreciation of them. We're attuning ourselves to them, attuning ourselves to that frequency and attending to them, being curious about them, investigating them, developing our understanding of them. And then we need to nurture them. So we find them and we nurture them. And what do we, how do we do that? We do that by uh, clearing away some of the weeds that grow over them and by um, beginning to heal some of the things that obstruct them. So one of the things that we haven't really spoken about, we didn't talk about the, the precepts. I think the managers talked to you about uh, the ethical ethical agreements for the retreat but uh, one of the big supports for this cultivation is for developing these these qualities in our meditation is actually the conditions that we bring to our life around them so that a sense of integrity actually makes it easy for these qualities to manifest when we commit ourselves to acting in ways that cause no harm and to speaking in ways that cause no harm, to speaking in ways that are kind and beneficial, then it provides a a fertile ground for these qualities to keep growing and developing in the heart. And, you know, even if you feel that your practice, your meditation practice is not going as you'd like it to be going during this retreat, it's really worth uh, reflecting on and acknowledging the fact that just the way that you are uh, behaving and agreeing to behave, the sense of non-harming kindness and the refraining from any kind of um, harmful speech is already creating conditions in which the heart can start to 
uh, rest to dwell in this, these kinds of attitudes. We're also practicing a lot of restraint here. And this is, this is also a condition that we can set up in our life where equanimity becomes more available to us, more of a natural resting place. So, uh, you know, just choosing not to act on certain impulses, whatever the mind is feeling, it starts to condition, condition the heart towards the possibility of equanimity. So wisdom comes in 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 learning and learning from our observation what to what to restrain in ourselves and then what to let sing out what qualities to let sing out and sometimes this is just about remembering a possibility you know it's not something that feels always accessible or on tap but if we're mindful we can remember we can remember this orientation we can remember this possibility there's always the possibility of including within this, within this dwelling place, within this orientation of the heart, all our perplexity or our fear or our outrage, our despair, our hostility, our ill will, all these things that, adventitious things that arise in the mind. These are the grounds, the, the compost out of which the lotus of these qualities can grow. And in a way, all we're doing in uh, not acting on unskillful impulses is, is to uh, allow what's there beneath to reveal itself. Yeah. So these qualities are actually present when we get below the things that obstruct them. So when we think about radiating qualities in all directions, it's, it's not so much that we're pumping, pumping something out of the heart as I like the image of we're actually just drawing back the curtains to allow what's there underneath to shine through. And it's really important in doing this work that we don't overlook or neglect the small moments of kindness, of compassion, of joy, of balance that... Uh, arise because these things accumulate and similarly that we don't neglect or discount the moments of the opposites that arise so the moments of ill will grumpiness grudge holding rehearsing our our stories of uh, aversion or ill will because these things also accumulate and snowball so uh, the practice involves always in the present moment seeing where am I making my home. So there's a commitment needed to these kinds of attitudes. And this is, um, this is the job of cultivating of tending these seeds to the extent that they actually plant roots and start to grow, take on a momentum of their own. And I like these, these cultivation metaphors, this sense of that we're, we're practicing with something very natural. This isn't something supernatural that we're talking about. This is actually um, natural capacities of the heart and mind that need to be respected and worked with in the way that we we would respect and work with the plants in the garden. You know, we put in place the conditions that allow them to blossom and then they, um, they do so in their own time. And this is re- really important in our approach to the whole of this practice that we, we swim with the flow of nature rather than against it. Nature, natural law, is actually the, the, the basic meaning of dharma. You know, we want to practice in accord with the Dharma. We want to practice in accord with the Dharma. The Dharma is uh, nature revealing itself, and so it has its own. It has its own logic and unfolding, and we can learn to trust and respect that. And 
uh, a teacher who I who I like very much in America, Gil Fronstel. He talks about practicing like a naturalist. So uh, taking the attitude of a naturalist, a person who uh, loves to watch and observe uh, and delight in nature with a sense of curiosity and interest. But a naturalist uh, is not judgmental about what they discover. If you think of David Attenborough, for example, and uh, the way that he, he reveals and delights in um, the different things that he explores. It's like, you know, we're not preferencing one manifestation of nature over another. So this speaks to the quality of equanimity. Can we learn to be equally near all the different um, conditions that dance across our mind and dance through this body? So we take the stance of a naturalist and we become both the naturalist and the nature. And nature nature we become nature freeing itself and that you know, makes me think maybe to say something about uh, working with doubt because I know this is a, a thing that comes up for many of us and some of you who I've spoken to have actually named that you know the question of what am I doing am I getting it Am I doing it right? We, have a, we live in a culture of expecting, wanting instant answers to things. And yet somebody last night very wisely said, well, I, I'm here, I'm not quite sure what I want, but I want to be able to listen to find out. And we start doing that, but then we, we want the answer now. So we start metaphorically jumping down, up and down on our cushion because we're not finding the answer that we want or the something still feels a little bit nebulous and we're not quite getting it or we're unclear. So really encouraging you to have, have patience, as Goethe said, have patience with their, all the unresolved questions in your heart and learn to love the questions until the answers present themselves. So our practice with, with doubt when it arises is to recognize it as doubt, to notice this energy of doubt. And then can we meet that doubt with these qualities of equanimity, of kindness? Trusting that we will learn, trusting our capacity to learn from nature and for nature's capacity to teach us trusting our ability to wake up to truth, to wake up to the Dharma, and the ability of Dharma to reveal itself to us. So that we can, you know, step back and get some perspective on this need, I have to know everything right away. And rather than that, just recognize this sense of not knowing and recognize also the discomfort of not knowing, because often that tips us into a sense of, oh, you know, I need to know now. Can we, can we stay in balance with a sense of not knowing? And if the sense of not knowing is, is really uncomfortable, can we recognize that discomfort as some suffering and actually meet that with a sense of kindness and compassion? Okay, this is how not knowing feels. It's uncomfortable. May I meet this discomfort with some kindness? I care. I care that it's uncomfortable. But I can rest for now in this not knowing. And what helps us with that is to widen our angle, widen our lens. You know, can we come into a perspective with it and those senses of resourcing ourselves, of seeing that we're not... We're not in this process alone. It's not just this little contracted sense of me that's here. We can, when we can touch the earth and sense our connection with something bigger than ourselves, maybe invite an image or a sense of a, a companion being whom we can trust and look to, uh, to uh, tap into this sense of being supported, being uh, seen being loved, being known. 
if that feels available to us. Whatever we can use to to broaden that sense of uh, that sense that we're not we're not doing this alone. That we can tap into these the boundlessness of these capacities of these qualities. And this is the same same approach that we would use with with fear or anxiety or any of these other mind states that come up that provide the soil for our cultivation. And so we can step back from them, we can we can as best we can find some place of equanimity and then we can begin to turn towards them with a sense of a sense of kindness, a sense of interest. So we just get to recognize, okay, doubt is like this, anxiety is like this, but I'm bigger than that. This can be held in a sense of kindness, in a sense of balance. So being a naturalist and being willing to learn from nature and there's so much that nature is teaching us around us at the moment about the possibilities of regeneration, of renewal, of abundance and also of the the fragility of life because we see also uh, its transience and its poignancy. So this may be, this helps to elicit a sense of both of appreciation and a sense of care, the world around us. So I was noticing the street where I live, there are a lot of magnolia trees and two or three weeks ago all the magnolias burst into into flower and they were completely stunning and then a day or two later they all started falling. There was something in the weather conditions and it was just really uh, startling to me and quite poignant at how quickly that tremendous bloom of life uh, disappeared again. Yeah. So we, we, can, we can learn a lot about uh, the processes of life and also about uh, letting go, really, as we watch this unfolding around us. Our practice is learning to go with and not against the grain of nature. So actually thinking about the, the beauty outside and the time of the year and it being Easter, uh, I felt like I wanted to share a poem that I find uh, quite beautiful that speaks to particularly, um, I think, the sense of compassion that we were talking about this afternoon and you might you might have heard this poem before, but I think it feels very seasonal and timely. And this is St. Francis and the Sow by Galway Kinnell. The bud stands for all things, even those that don't flower. For everything flowers from within of self-blessing though sometimes it is necessary to reteach a thing its loveliness, to put a hand on its brow of the flower and retell it in words and in touch. It is lovely until it flowers again from within of self-blessing. As St. Francis put his hand on the creased forehead of the sow, and told her in words and in touch, blessings of earth on the sow. And the sow began remembering all down her thick length from the earthen snout, all the way through the fodder and slops to the spiritual curl of the tail, from the hard spininess spiked out from the spine down through the great broken heart to the sheer blue milken dreaminess spurting and shuddering 
from fourteen teats into the fourteen mouths, sucking and blowing beneath them. The long, perfect loveliness of Sal. What do we dismiss and overlook or exclude in ourselves? What do we dismiss and overlook and exclude in others? Do we identify with St. Francis or with the Sow? Can we, can we find our inner St. Francis as well as our, our inner Sow? Sometimes we need to reteach ourselves our loveliness and rediscover the loveliness in the things and the people around us. Sometimes we, we need to open ourselves to the touch or the gaze of another. But everything is there to be loved if we want to turn the mind that way. I had, there were a few questions that I also thought to say something about, um, which are, I hope, related. A couple of things that are, I think to do a lot to do with equanimity. Well, actually, no, they're all to do with equanimity, in fact. So somebody, somebody wrote what I, I felt was a very good observation it feels so compulsive never to stay in the present i n- never stay in the present it's almost addictive to jump towards and back from thoughts and restlessness i'm not even sure i've been much been there in the present <laughs> so you know, noticing the, the, the addictive quality of this jumping around of the mind, of this restless mind and the pushing and pulling towards things and away from things. And recognizing, you know, relating this to the sense of habit. And of course, it's difficult. It's, you know, these habits, of, these habits are very strong. And this is why, uh, you know, we're inviting persistently the cultivation of another habit. But I think it's, good, it's, it's really good that this is noticed, this behavior, this habit of the mind. And the sense of uh, not really knowing what the present moment is. You know, we talk a lot about the present moment. Oh, come home to the present moment. And when we look for it, it can be quite a hard thing to find because what we notice is that as things are constantly changing when we look there. So I think one of the, one of the things that might, I, I would just offer in response to this kind of question and this predicament is to uh, not so much look for, look for stillness in the present moment, you know, that this is what minds do. They jump around, they jump backwards and forwards. But what we can begin to cultivate is the capacity to calmly know change as it's happening. So Joseph Goldstein has this, this, this phrase that he uses a lot, keep, keep calmly knowing change. So this, this jumping around will happen, but we can start to develop in a steadiness in the, in the heart. So the steadiness is in the, in the gaze and not in the contents of this moment. Because yeah. we, be, we might be looking for stillness in a place where it's not going to be found. Yeah. So the, the steadiness, the stillness comes in the, 
in the attitude of observing, not in actually what's going on. So maybe I hope that that might help a little bit. Don't don't look don't look for stillness and steadiness in in the contents of your experience. But can we take our seat somehow in the middle of it? Another thing that um, can somehow confuse itself or a a danger of practicing a lot of equanimity is uh, that we start sliding into the hindrance of sleepiness. So somebody's asked about sleepiness and I'm sure that they're not alone, that other people have been experiencing sleepiness. So how to meet the hindrance of sleepiness uh, skillfully in our practice So uh, when, we, when we encounter sleepiness, um, the first thing to do is not to add, add to the problem by adding aversion. Yeah. So sleepiness will manifest, especially when we, we stop, we're not used to stopping or we, we come from a busy life, we're tired. But what we can, what we can bring to it is a sense of interest, as best we can, we can bring some interest to it. So we're powering up the part of our equanimity, which is about looking on, looking, looking at, looking over, not looking away. Um, so we start to see, actually, okay, well, what is this experience of sleepiness? So we're not lost inside it, but we have this, this sense of perspective. So the equanimity looks on as if we're, we're looking from a high vantage point over what's happening. And we can actually turn to all, towards it rather than away from it, because when we try to get away from something, we're usually numbing out from it, and you know, that will just exacerbate the sense of sleepiness. And the Buddha had a great image for, for sleepiness. He said it's like if your mind is like a clear bowl of water. When it's sleepy, it's as if the water's become completely covered over with algae. So you can't actually even see what's in the water underneath. And sleepiness can hide all sorts of other things. So it may be gen- genuinely that you're physically tired, but it may be that there's something, something else that you kind of don't want to be with, and then the, the mind's response is to clock out a bit with sleepiness. So if we um, power up the investigation, we can kind of peel back the algae a little bit and see what's underneath there, um, what exactly is happening how does this actually feel? What's, what's actually, what is this experience that I'm calling sleepiness? What are the, what are the thoughts that are there lurking in the background? What, are the, what is the experience in the body? That We just start to bring some interest to it. And we, of course, need, to, need some patience with that. Because if we get impatient with it, we're adding aversion. And then we can do practical things, of course, like open our eyes, maybe take deeper breaths, try all those sorts of things. But um, I really recommend bringing, bringing a sense of interest. Okay. And one thing I've noticed is that uh, when I'm feeling bright and happy in the mind, I tend to be less sleepy. So even something like uh, generating a little inner smile to myself, actually it arouses energy. A sense of appreciation or enjoyment arouses energy and can help to uh, start to dispel some of that. But then there's an, another question about equanimity, which I'm sure is there in, in many people's minds and hearts at the moment as well, which says, I find it hard slash impossible to practice equanimity in the face of dreadful and hideous world events and leaders. I hesitate to use the word evil. What is going on? <laughs> so feel some resonance in the room around that. Yeah. 
So what is the, what is the, what's the appropriate response in the face of the quite extraordinary things that we're witnessing in the world around us and uh, yeah, some of the, the behaviours of our would-be leaders? And we can ask ourselves whether actually cultivating too much equanimity in times such as this is actually maybe not a good idea. You know, that it will lead us to passivity and to, to not doing anything. But I think actually what is called for is even more skill, not just in equanimity, but in all of these qualities. So Catherine was speaking predominantly this afternoon about the tender face of compassion. But compassion has many faces it also has a wrathful face that um, will say a no to certain circumstances so one of the archetypal images for compassion of course is a, the image of Avalokiteshvara or Kuan Yin with a thousand arms a thousand hands and a thousand eyes that can respond to all the different sorts of um, suffering conditions that arise in the world and each of these thousand hands carries a different implement and some of these implements are things like swords and axes so they're things that um, can be used for a swift and decisive response sometimes compassion uh, needs to manifest as action or as a strong no and compassion is is it's not just an, an attitude of, a, of caring, it's an attitude of, or not just a resonating with suffering, but it's actually infused with an active desire to alleviate suffering, to do something to help. But then, in order for this to be uh, available to us and construct, used constructively, we also need to develop the quality of equanimity, because there are always going to be limits to our capacity to uh, change a situation. So that these, these qualities need to balance one another. And we also, in order to determine the appropriate course of action, we need a sense of stability and groundedness. situations can seem so completely overwhelming you know if we ask ourselves what is the appropriate response to the climate crisis for example you know if we if we just uh, have a resonate resonate with the predicament that um, we see that the the earth is in and we have no equanimity then there's, there's a likelihood that we'll just collapse into a state of despair you know? We need a sense of, um, in some ways, an ability to detach ourselves from the out- outcome of our responses in order to move, move forward fearlessly and still respond. You know? But compassion may, might call, call us to actually do something, to take action, take action in terms of changing our behaviours, in terms of... Um, how we, how we dialogue with other people about this, how we contribute to a climate of opinion and how we take action with other people. And the same in the realm of, of politics. I think we need a lot of equanimity to, um, to respond to events that happen you know, in terms of um, people who try to terrorise us or frighten us. So all the, the, the constant um, use in the, in the media of the word terror, you know, we start to invite a climate of fear, of dread, of terror. And is that what we want to... Uh, it's certainly not, what, not a useful mind state for us to abide in. Yeah, we, wa- we want to, um, to acknowledge the atrocity of what goes on, but actually to find ourselves persuaded into a mind state of terror is not very, not very useful. We need to be able to resource our, to 
uh, to um, access our own uh, capacity for courage, for fearlessness, and for some kind of um, determined, determined response. So it's interesting that today, this weekend, is Easter, yeah, and the, the example of a non-violent, um, a non-violent activism par excellence that's expressed through the story of Easter. And uh, last week, as some of you might have seen it, if not, I really recommend. There's a there's a film on in the cinemas at the moment. Um, about the lives of three three prominent civil rights activists in the states called I am your, I am not your negro uh, based on the some writings of James Baldwin and it talks it it has lots of uh, footage of Martin Luther King Jr and Malcolm X and Medgar Evers but Martin Luther King Jr is particularly inspiring in terms of an example of how effective uh, determined action can be, but action from a place of really uh, equanimity and compassion. How much equanimity do we have to be able to develop to, in order to be a really effective uh, leader and responder in the most extreme of circumstances? So I know that the situations around us make it you know, they call for a very highly evolved sense of compassion and equanimity. Um, and maybe it feels difficult to practice these things in response. But this is also where, you know, the, the, to remember that we don't, we, we, we respond in this moment. We don't have to deal with everything all at once. So to find in this moment what move can I make with my heart, with my mind, my intentions? And so we can, we can either you know, see this as a, um, a situation under which we can collapse or we can use it as a situation to inspire us, to motivate us, to motivate ourselves with this practice, with this cultivation. And so that is something I really... You know, um, encourage us all to reflect upon, and also partly, you know, why it feels so important to us to to talk about this orienting outwards with our practice. That it's not just about this, which in any ways is 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 an illusion. This this isolated little unit here, but everything that we're doing here on our zafus, you know, there's moments of sitting through doubt, frustration, boredom, tedium. You know, we're developing muscles that we can take out there and, um, and really invite you to put to work in whatever way that you can. So I think I've spoken enough. Let's just sit for a moment or two and let the words go back into silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.